almost every day out there. You wore a snowmobile suit. You actually were more wet on the bottom than you were on the top when you did it that way. But years ago, and and a young, newly saved Marine, uh, learning how to serve the Lord faithfully right where he had called me. I want to say thank you for your hospitality. Again, appreciate the 50-amp hookups. Also, the wonderful meal we had yesterday. Thank you very much. And then we're running around in a little PT boat. Brother Caleb, where's Brother Caleb? Brother Caleb, where's Brother Caleb? Caleb, up? Okay. Well, Brother Caleb, thank you for the PT boat. What is that? It's a car. You know, my, my rig's the aircraft carrier, okay? We're going to put it in nautical terms. You don't parallel park that thing, that's for sure. But I've got a little PT boat to travel around in, and I, Deb and I appreciate that. And uh, <laughs> this is information you don't need, but I'll just give it to you. Uh, <clears throat> we get those things, and sometimes we have fun with them. I was in Prescott, Arizona years ago. The pastor lent me his car. Deb and I were out one evening, and it had a heavy snowfall. Now, I grew up a farm boy in Minnesota. Everything was rear-wheel drive, maybe some posi traction. That was all you had. And so I would learn to spin donuts in the high school parking lot when I was in high school, you know. Rear-wheel drive, you do it forward. But this was a front-wheel drive vehicle, and I'd never tried to spin one of those out. And so uh, I went ahead and said, I think you have to do it in reverse if you want to do that. So you would have seen this pastor, this preacher with his wife, in an Olive Garden parking lot, nobody was there, spinning that thing, donuts with the preacher's car. And uh, yeah, here comes Caleb for the keys right now, all right? So you never, you never know what I'll do. And this will probably be the last vehicle anybody lends me. That'll probably be it. So that was some useless info you really didn't need. But anyhow, I thought I'd give it to you. Take your Bibles tonight. Go to the book of James. Book of James. Does anybody need a handout? If you came in and you don't have a handout, slip your hand up. My wife is going to scamper those out. And if you need a pen, raise your hand as well so that you can take some notes. I said to somebody tonight as they came in, uh, they said, we, uh, we're looking forward to this evening, one of the ladies. And I said, I'm going to give you a message that you will use for the rest of your life. You will use this thought for the rest of your life. And so I'm encouraging you to take notes and to write these things down. As, uh, as Deb passes those out, let's turn to the book of James, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we're going to start a series out of the book of James, and if you know anything about the book of James, it's a very challenging book. The book of James focuses on many things. I want to just say as we begin the thought this evening that, you know, salvation is an instantaneous event. Amen? Amen. Salvation is not a process. Some would teach that salvation is a process. There's certain religious things you have to do and certain righteousness you have to build up and work your way toward a point that God says, there, you're good enough and you have enough good in you, I'm going to let you into heaven. Kind of the balance thing. That's not how salvation works. Salvation is described as being born again. And we know a birth is an instantaneous event. I say it this way concerning salvation. If you're, you're looking for something to do to impress God, to bribe your way into his heaven one day, you're 2,000 years too late. It already got done at Calvary. You'll never best what God did for your soul. The only sacrifice that satisfies his demands for your sin payment is a sinless sacrifice. His name, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you have the Son, you have life. If you have not the Son of God, you have not life. I don't care how religious you are. It's redemption in the finished work of Calvary and faith in what he did 2,000 years ago that saves you from your sin, all right? It's not what you're doing. It's what he's already done. And so as we begin this thought tonight, I want to recognize that though salvation is an instantaneous event, I was 18 as a young Marine when my faith found a resting place in Jesus Christ, and I was saved. I was born again. Salvation is an instantaneous event, but spiritual maturity is a lifelong pursuit. All right? We haven't arrived. We're guaranteed heaven in Jesus Christ, but we're still here on earth, and maturity in this Savior now becomes a lifelong pursuit. Notice in the book of James, chapter 1, when you find your place, stand with me. I want to just read a few verses here and move into a thought. The book of James in chapter, chapter 1, notice what's said in verse number 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, notice these are saved people. These are individuals whose faith has found a resting place in Jesus Christ alone. He's speaking of their faith, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And now look at verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Here, the Spirit of God through James addressing believers, he encourages them to be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. You know, tonight we need to recognize that the book of James deals with authentic Christianity. And the central theme throughout this book is simply this, grow up. Grow up and quit acting like a child. If you're saved, act like it. If you belong to the Savior, live like it. And the word perfect occurs six times in the book of James, has this idea of being mature, being complete, if you will, being grown up and mature in the Savior we now belong to. I want to go ahead and pray and then move into this thought tonight. It'll be a help to your heart. It's already helped mine as I've studied for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you tonight again for the privilege to be in your house and with your people. Thank you, Lord, that we can call you our Father. Thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're grateful for the day that your Holy Spirit showed us who we really were, just, just dirty, rotten, wicked, filthy sinners. But then, Father, you showed us who you were, a holy God that demanded payment. And then you opened our eyes to who your son was. And our faith found a resting place in what you did for our sinful souls. Thank you for the day you saved us and put us in the household of faith. And now in your son's name, we pray your blessing on our time. Father, we pray for the one among us who may not be saved. May they recognize their need for a savior. But for each of us that are saved tonight, may you challenge us to grow up in our Christian faith. Lord, we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Grow up. Here in the book of James, Christians are being addressed. 
Heaven is their home. They're heading there one day because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But the cry here in the book of James is to become mature and to grow up in this faith and in the Savior who you now belong to. Could I say tonight as we begin the series, first of all, growth ought to always be expected. Amen? That should be an expectation. It is normal in living things. Do you know growth is not normal in a dead thing, but things that are alive automatically grow. Amen? And if something's healthy, it also grows. Unhealthy things oftentimes don't, but healthy things do. We have 10 healthy grandchildren, an 11th one on the way. You know something about those healthy grandchildren? First of all, I expect them to grow. Amen? Second of all, I, I also, because they're healthy, I expect them to mature as well. And, and when we look at that thought, I'm just trying to set the stage, the idea of growth when you become a believer ought to be expected. I mean, if you're saved and you're spiritually healthy, spiritual maturity and growth should be an automatic thing. You don't have to force it. Amen? It'll just be the byproduct of life. Healthy things grow. You know, as I think of my grandchildren, I recognize the fact that there are some funny, crazy things they do. And we as Christians should recognize that our behaviors and attitudes should change over time and we should become more mature, not less mature. There are certain things I expect from my grandchildren. I can make the list and tell the stories. They're humorous and then they're not so funny, amen? I've watched, watched my little grandchildren throw a fit, throw themselves on the ground because they, they didn't get what they wanted. You know, and that's behavior I expect from a two-year-old. That's just anticipated. That's part of that stage of that early life, amen? But let me tell you, 20 years from now, I'm not expecting that behavior, I'm expecting something entirely different. I'm not expecting a 22-year-old to throw themselves on the floor and have a fit if they don't get their way. The reason is because I'm expecting growth. I don't want them to stay where they are. And let me say this. When you got saved, God does not expect you to stay the way he found you. Amen? He expects you to grow up in certain areas. James is that challenging thought. And the very first area God wants us to grow up in, look with me in the book of James. Notice he says this. In James chapter 1, he says, in verse number 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What is the first area tonight? After you're saved, the Lord wants you to grow up in. The very first area God wants you to grow up in is in your attitude toward trials and tribulation. Write that down. Fellow brothers and fellow sisters, the very first area that God challenges us in the book of James to grow up in is in our attitude towards trials and tribulations. The first thing I want to look at is in verse number two, the proper attitude. Look at the attitude God wants us to have. He says this in verse two, my brethren... Count it all what? What's he say? Say the word with me. Joy. When ye fall into divers temptations, which means tests or trials. 
Do you know the proper attitude toward trials and tribulation in the believer's life? It is joy. It is joy. Do you know that we cannot always control our circumstances, but we can always control our attitude? Amen? Notice how he says this, too. He says this, count. That has the idea of don't discount it. Don't just throw it away. Don't say it's not significant. Count it. Go ahead and, and, and count it all what? Joy. There's the right attitude when ye fall, and the idea there is unexpected. I don't know about you, but probably one of the most challenging things that happens to me is the unexpected trial. You know what I'm saying? As if they're all expected. They're not. That blind side, you know, the one you didn't see coming, catches you up. That's the one that really grabs me and shakes me. He says, count it all joy when ye fall. It has the idea this is an unexpected trial. I didn't see this coming, you know. Fall into what? Divers. Has the idea of many, numerous. You ever heard the saying, when it rains, it what? Pours. You ever had one of those days? Man, it just never stopped. Like Job, one messenger shows up, and he's not even done talking, and here's another one, and then another one. And God takes it all, and, uh, you know, in Job's life, the only one he left was his wife. <laughs> An extra trial, you know. So you don't know Job's story if you, you know, just you study that out. Of all the people he could have been blessed with, wow. Her, her advice to him was just curse God and die. <laughs> what an encourager. <laughs> But, you know, there's days like that. And the Lord is saying here, believers, you need to get your attitude right about trials and tribulations. Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, which means tests and trials. Let me just tell you, that's usually the opposite of what we do. Usually when all that stuff shows up one day, the last thing we do, we don't praise the Lord. We start grumbling. We start getting all upset. We start drop-kicking something within sight, getting all mad. Why is this happening to me? You know what I mean? This is why he said, hey, you need to grow up in your attitude when these things get in your life. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and notice something here. He says in verse number 3, go to 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, our faith is noted here, and it's likened to something very uniquely. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, look at what he says in verse number 4. 1 Peter 1, 4, he talks about us being saved and begotten unto a lively hope in verse 3. Then in verse 4, he says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, the fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What a wonderful portion of Scripture about our salvation. Then he adds this, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, tests. Watch this, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, might, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know, here your faith is likened, and my faith is likened to gold. You know, 
there's an interesting thing about gold, and until I studied it, I never even knew it. And I come from Alaska, which we are a state with a lot of mining up there, a lot of gold. But you might want to jot this in your notes. The value of gold is only determined by something. What do you think it is? How do you determine the value of gold? What, what, it's, you know, what its value is. What do you, what, how do you determine the value of gold? Do you have some gold you're holding on to it? Maybe it's a, a nugget. What, how do you determine the value of that? What was that? You, the mint? Is that what? Demand. Demand. Okay, all right. So now we're doing an economic. In other words, what pushes its value. But at that moment, whatever the demand is, gold has a certain price. How do you determine the value of the gold, sis? Weight, purity, all of that combined is this. You never know the value of gold until you test it. You determine the value of gold by testing it. You can't determine its value just by looking at it. You can't de determine its value any other way. You have to take it to the assayer, and then he goes ahead and finds out its weight, find out its purity, figures the market value, and then he says, this is what the gold is worth. You cannot find out the value of gold until you test it. And here's the thing. You will never know the value of your faith until it's tested. It's a spiritual impossibility. Faith is this intangible thing. Nobody can see it. Not until it's tested and tried do you determine the value of your faith. And let me say, the testing ground for our faith, according to the book of James, is this life. This is where our faith gets tested. Amen? It's not going to get tested on the other side. It gets tested on this side. And you'll never know the value of your faith until it's tested. Christian, you and I got to get this thing right. Go back to James chapter 1. You and I have got to figure this thing out. Now that we're saved and God didn't take us home to glory, he's got us here for purpose, you need to realize that life is that testing that, that he uses in our lives to determine the value of our, of our faith. Look at the point I put. We can never grow. Christian, you will never grow until you get your attitude right concerning trials and tribulations. Your testing is not against you, it's for you. Write that in there. Your testing is not against you. When the trial comes, when the tribulation comes, when that comes into your life, it's not against you, it's for you. Your trial is not meant to break you, it's meant to build you. Write that in there. Christian, your trial, your testing is not meant to ruin you, but to reveal the value of your faith, the purity of it. I remember years ago, I was newly saved. Um, I got saved in Memphis, Tennessee. It's where I heard the gospel clearly presented. And I would like to say I got saved the very first time I came to church, but I didn't. But I did go out of church, and this is what I said as I came out of that, that independent Baptist church. I said, if anybody's got the truth, these guys got the truth. They took the word of God, and with authority, they sent it out. I knew that book was truth. I knew that was truth. You never caught me putting the Bible in a garbage can. I knew it was better than a Louis L'Amour Western. It was something special. It was very special. It was a God-breathed book, and I knew it. 
but I couldn't have told you how to make peace with God. But when I came out of that church that day, I said, these guys, they got the truth. And so for the next two months, I put myself under preaching. I went to church. I went to Bible studies. And on a Monday night, I got saved. I remember when I got saved, I called home and shared the news and, and eventually was instrumental in bringing the gospel to my entire family. Over the course of eight years, one by one, they came to know the Lord as Savior. It was a great blessing. But I remember a few months after I got saved, we, I was in Memphis, Tennessee, finishing up my electronics training as a young Marine. And if you know anything about Millington, it's a Navy base with Navy and Marine Corps personnel, primarily students, going through there. And wouldn't you know, I hit that time of the year, the end of May, where they had the Navy Marine track and field meet. Man, this was a big deal. All the Navy students and all the Marine Corps students, they had a track meet. And I was a bit of a gazelle back then. I was quite a runner. And so I got assigned to the one-mile run. And my gunny sergeant, I'll never forget that. It, it, as we were training for that, I'm thinking a one-mile run, no big deal. Three miles is what we run in the Corps, so one mile is no problem. But under that hot, humid sun in Memphis, that gunny, he, he wouldn't run me just for a mile. That was the run. He'd run me for three miles. Then he'd run me for four. Then five. I remember he had me on a seven-mile run one day. Seven miles. All I could think of, gunny hates me. Gunny hates me. Gunny's got it out for me. And I remember the day I ran that seven-mile run. I got to that three-and-a-half-mile turnaround, you know, and I remember it's about 90 degrees, 98% humidity. I mean, the heat is just billowing up the tunic. The salt is stinging your eyes. Your tongue is parched. And all I could think of was, I am so glad I am not going to hell. I am so glad I'm not going to hell. I remember thinking that. And then I would tell that to the buddy next to me. Huff, puff, puff. Oh, man, I'm so glad I'm not going to hell. Are you going to heaven? Man, you don't want to go to hell. It's worse than... And I remember just telling me to basically shut up. I mean, he wasn't saved. But I witnessed the whole way I ran. And I remember as I came to the barracks, all I could picture was that nasty plunge in the shower. Stuff was peeling off before I got into the barracks. Psh, I remember that. But I remember thinking, Gunny. When he said, okay, seven-mile run, you one-milers, we're running seven, it was, you don't say anything, but it was like, what is this sadistic individual doing to me? Seven miles? But here's what he knew. He wanted to build my stamina. He wanted to build me and make me stronger, and he did just that as much as I hated it. And when that day came to run one mile, that was like a walk in the park, no big deal, just zipped around that track. It was, he built me to that point. Listen, that's what the Lord does for his children. He doesn't want your faith to just begin and, and just be a simple child. Uh, child all the, he wants you to grow, mature in your Christian faith. And one of the areas he wants you to grow up in is in your attitude towards trials and tribulations. Go to Exodus with me. Watch this. The Lord is trying to build and strengthen you tonight. He's trying to move you beyond just simply walking with Him. He wants you to run. He wants you to, you know, we say it, you walk with a footman, but you can also ride with the horses. Amen. You can run with a horseman. He wants our faith to be strong, even in trials. And notice in Exodus chapter 15, the children of Israel have just had an incredible victory. 
They have just been delivered from Pharaoh. They've come across the Red Sea in a supernatural way. And watch in verse 22 of Exodus chapter 15. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. They went out into the wilderness of Shur. And look at this. They went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. They went from a lot of water to no water. And then watch this in verse 23. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter, therefore the name of it was called Marah. They went from a lot of water to no water to some water, but it was bitter water. Can you imagine the disappointment? Three days with no water. And man, it's just, you know, you see the... The stories, you've seen the, the movies, they're parched, they're going through the desert, they're looking for that water, you know, the sweat, and just, the, and all of a sudden, there it is. Oh, there it is. And I could see them as a nation and as a people. Oh, isn't God good? There's water. He gave us water. And then they get to it, and it's an absolute disappointment. They can't drink it. It almost, it almost mocks them hauntingly. It, it looks so real, but it's undrinkable. It's unpotable. What was their response? Notice the Bible says in verse 24, And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Look at this. The people's response to this trial they begin to murmur. They murmur against Moses. Look in chapter 16, just a few verses later in verse 2. They do it again. The whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And look at what he says in verse 8 of chapter 16. He reminds them at the end of verse 8, What are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but ultimately they're against the Lord. You know, tonight we, we serve a sovereign God. What that simply means is nothing is allowed in your life without his permission. That's all that means. He's sovereign. You know, tonight, if you go to visit heaven, he's not pacing heaven right now, sucking down Maylocks, worrying about the next election. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, his rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Daniel 4.17 says that, that he deals in the kingdoms and affairs of men. Amen? He's a sovereign God. All your hairs in your head are, are counted. There's not a single sparrow that drops. He doesn't note it. How much more you that belong to him. You're the apple of his eye. You're a child of his. You're not insignificant. You're extremely significant to him. And so were the children of Israel. They acted like he didn't care. They murmured against leadership, ultimately the Lord. Notice it says in verse 25, and he cried unto the Lord. Go back to Exodus 15, verse 25. After they murmur, he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. This is an amazing moment here because the people murmur against Moses. They murmur against the Lord. And right over the hill was the answer to their need all along. The tree was always there. God had already made provision. And here's the point I want you to get. They were not out of God's will. Amen? The children of Israel were not out of God's will. They were right where God wanted them. Amen? 
They weren't out of God's will. Second of all, Moses wasn't out of God's will. He hadn't taken a wrong turn and led him into the desert and, you know, into an area there were bitter. He wasn't out of God's will. And the devil didn't make them do it. The devil wasn't in control here. Y'all with me? God did this. Why? Verse 25 says it. To prove them. To prove them. To for a moment see how they would respond. And I wrote down in my notes, and they failed the test. How? How do you know they failed the test? Because they murmured against the Lord. Amen? Amen? Hey, hey, this is a big deal. God doesn't inhabit the murmurings of his people. Do you understand that? He flees from that. He does not inhabit the grumblings and the complainings of his people. Do you understand that? He doesn't get closer to you, enable you more, and make you a more effective Christian the more you complain. Do you understand that? He inhabits the praises of his people. No, they weren't out of God's will. Moses hadn't taken a wrong turn. And the devil wasn't the one in charge here. The Lord was. God did all of that for one reason. He wanted to prove them. And they failed the test by complaining. I wonder how many times God allows things in your life and my life that are they're just out of our control and they're not things we would have ordered on the morning checklist. We'd love to have the coffee, love to have our bacon done a certain way, but I didn't want that. Lord, you know I didn't want that. You know I didn't want that. You know, I mean, like, we're in charge, please. And then he sends something, and what do we do? We get all upset. We start grumbling and complaining. We fail the test where he's proving us. The proper attitude is joy. You say that with me. The proper attitude is joy. He inhabits the praises of his people. But second of all, I want you to notice something. Joy will bring that patient response. Go back to our text here and watch this. Watch this. In James chapter 1, notice what he says. Verse number 2 of James chapter 1, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. <laughs> it's so opposite of the, the sin nature. It's just so opposite. But no, notice, knowing this, that the trying of your faith, look at this, worketh patience. You know the proper attitude, if you'll have that, should bring next a very patient response. And write this down. The proper response to trials, you ready, is patience. The proper response to trials is patience. Write that in there. And I'm going to say this and build on authentic and mature Christianity. Believers, this is for all of us. Authentic and mature Christianity recognizes that the number one thing you need in your life in the midst of a trial is, I'm going to say it again, write it down, patience. The number one thing, brothers and sisters, that you and I need in our life in the midst of a trial is patience. Write that down. Because I'm going to say something. Some of you are going to light up here. <laughs> I remember newly saved. I got stationed with the Marines up at Whidbey Island, north of Seattle. 
And early in my Christianity, this is what I heard from many well-meaning saints. I would hear them say this, Now, brother, don't pray for patience. How many of you ever heard that one? I, I never have said that. I've never said that because it, it just didn't quite fit, but I've heard it said by some very godly people. Uh, I can think of Sister Sharon. She would always say that. And uh, she would say, now, Brother Dave, don't pray for patience. Now, why, why did we hear that constantly in our Christian life? Why? What is that based on? What, what is it? Go to Romans 5. Go to Romans 5. This is what it was based on. It was based on a, a section of scripture here, a verse, in Romans 5, and then an inference, and kind of trying to connect some dots. In Romans 5, look what's said here in verse number 3. Romans 5 in verse number 3. Here's what's said. Romans 5, verse 3. The Bible says this. It says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, what? Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, right? So here was the inference. If you pray for patience, then God's going to send you tribulations, right? Because it's tribulation that worketh patience. And that's a fair assessment. But can I just tell you practically, in my experience as a believer, can I just tell you looking at all of the Word of God, could I say this? That whether you pray for patience or not, you're still going to get the tribulations, could I get a witness there? Amen? You're still going to get it. In fact, Jesus Christ said in John 16 and verse 33, what did he say? In this world ye shall have tribulation. How many of you in the last month went ahead and uh, specifically, you just very earnestly said, Lord, I need more patience. You actually prayed for it very specifically. How many of you actually did that in the last 30 days? One, two, three, of, of some, all right. Now, not all of us, I specifically didn't, but could I just say, how many of you in the last 30 days had some trials, whether you prayed for patience or not? Okay, point made. You know, there's no shortage of tribulation, especially when you get saved. Because this world is no longer our home. We're like a salmon going the wrong way on this whole deal. We're swimming upstream. You all with me? We're, we're not, we don't think the way the world thinks now. We don't live the way the world wants us to live and press us into their mold. We're kind of, you know, peculiar. It's peculiar is used wrong. It actually means, comes from pecuniary. It means purchased. But if you just put it in our common language, we are peculiar. We do, we're different. And we just don't, this world is not our own. Home now. We're just a passing through. Our treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And so you need to recognize that when you get saved, that you automatically will not just get the normal trials that everybody gets, but you'll get some more because you now are an object of wrath in the, in the mind of the devil. You don't fit into this world. Your old sin nature is fighting everything the Spirit of God is trying to do. There's going to be more trials and tribulations, not less. I've noticed this. In this world, we do have tribulation. Whether we pray for it or not, there's no shortage of trials and tribulations. You know what the shortage is I find in Christianity? Patience. We use a term, that's the short suit today. 
and it shouldn't be. Amen? That ought to be our long suit because we're dwelt by a long-suffering Savior. He's our Savior. The Holy Spirit indwells us. That ought to be our long suit. Patience is the proper response when a trial comes. You say, why? Why? I say this, pray for patience. Pray for patience. Why? First of all, because we don't see a lot of it in Christianity today. We even, we, we're such impatient people. And could I say this? We want to be spiritually mature like now, you know. I mean, what's the American way of doing things? We stand in front of a microwave and yell at it to hurry up. That's how America operates. And we take that whole societal idea and we bring it into our Christianity. And Lord, I want it now. Lord, I need it now. And Lord, I want to be this now. And Lord, it's ah! We stand in front of the Word of God and scream at it to hurry up. Why pray for patience? Go to Romans 12. Watch this. In Romans 12, the proper attitude is joy, but that if you'll have joy, you'll then respond with a proper response, and it's patience when the trial comes. Look at what's said in Romans 12, in verse number 12. Romans 12, verse 12. Go back to verse 10. Look at what's said. It says, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Romans 12, and verse 10. In honor, preferring one another, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. Now watch this, patient in tribulation. Your notes on the back there, write this in. Romans 12, 12 tells us that we are to be, there's the word again, patient in tribulation. My question this evening is why? Why should a believer be patient in tribulation? Two reasons. Number one, write this in. Patience allows you to reflect the glory of God. That's a big deal in this world we're living in today. Patience allows you to reflect the glory of God. Go to Philippians 2 and watch this. Look at how the Word of God describes that patient response and what it does. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 14. The first thing patience allows you to do is to reflect the glory of God. In Philippians chapter 2, look what's said in verse number 14. It says, do all things. How many things? Say the word with me. All. All things without murmurings and disputings. Grumbling, complaining, bad-mouthing. Why? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Look at this. Among whom ye shine as lights in this world. You know what patience does, first of all? If you'll respond to the trial with patience, the first thing it allows you to do is to reflect the glory of your God. Amen? Because this world is a very impatient place. And let me say this. If you take the time, impatience and impatient people do not reflect the Savior. They don't reflect the Lord. They reflect sin and self. Amen? That's what impatient people do. They don't bring glory to God. They just show people they're sinful 
and they reveal self, not Savior. Impatient people are not good listeners, and they're not good learners. You ever try to teach an impatient person? Yeah, no, I, I, I just, my wife, do not share testimony, because <laughs> she'll come out there. I'm in the middle of a project. Do you need anything? Hon, if I needed something, I would have asked you. Now I have to pause. You know, that's, that's my test in the middle of a project. Anybody can identify with that? Don't leave me hanging out here, guys. <laughs> Don't do that. So when I turn down an aisle like that, you join me, okay? Don't say, up, you're on your own. <laughs> Impatient people are not good listeners. Impatient people are not good students and learners. They're hard to teach. You with me? Impatient people don't reflect the Savior. They, they reflect sin and they reflect self. And impatient people, I jotted this down if you're taking notes, they get carnal. Moses got impatient on the plan of God and what was his response? Is in, in his impatient spirit, he killed an Egyptian. Amen? Peter got impatient about the whole plan of God. He cut off a, a, the servant of the high priest there. Ear, impatient people are not godly people. Impatient people do not reflect their Savior. You know what's sad to watch? The Christian who's been saved for years act like a child, quit serving the Lord, react immaturely, get offended quickly over some little trial, some little offense, or some little struggle that comes into their life. To me, it's so disheartening. It's like watching a 20-year-old throw themselves on the ground and throw a fit. And yet it happens today in Christian circles. You need to recognize that the very first thing that patience allows you to do is to reflect the glory of God in this wicked world out there that needs to see someone besides self. They need to see Christ in us, that hope of glory. Patience reflects our Savior well. Amen? But second of all, write this, fill this in. There's a second thing that patience will give you as a believer. Not only will it allow you to reflect the glory of God, but second of all, patience allows God to build your faith and character. Write that in. Patience allows God to then do something for you, and that is to build your faith and build your character. Go to 2 Peter and watch how the Spirit of God describes this. In 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, notice what's said in verse number 3. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse number 3. He's speaking to Christians here, and he notes the divine nature that is now with us now that we're saved in first second peter chapter 1 look at what he says in verse 3 according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue watch verse 4 whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now watch what he wants us to do as believers. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith what? Say it. Say it out loud. Virtue. What's virtue? It's clean living. 
It's clean living. You know what he's saying? If you're saved and you're a believer, the very first thing you ought to do now that you're saved is recognize that you have joined a holy father's household. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And that's what he's saying. You now belong to me. I'm a holy father. You need to be holy just like me. Amen? So he says, you add to your faith virtue, clean living. Then notice what he says. And to virtue, what? Knowledge. I call that Bible knowledge. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Then he says, add to knowledge what? Temperance. And to temperance, what? Patience, as we're talking about. And to patience, what? Godliness. Now pause for a moment. You know, we approach that text, and here's what we kind of look. Well, now that I'm saved, there's the foundation, and now I just put all these things on that. No. He says, now that you're saved, you, you go ahead and add to your faith virtue. You don't add then knowledge to your faith. You add knowledge to virtue. You see that? You listen, Bible knowledge without clean living and the right attitude will turn you into a spiritual monster. You with me? You'll think you're something because you know something. Listen, that virtue thing's a big deal. Clean living, right attitudes, right activities. You with me? So you, you add to your faith virtue, and then you add to virtue knowledge, and you add to knowledge temperance, and you add to temperance patience, and you add to patience godliness. You know what that tells me? If you're an impatient person in the midst of trials, you'll never be godly. It's a spiritual impossibility. Because godliness gets added to patience. Amen? You need to understand that tonight. Christian, you and I need to accept this fact. If we are going to remain impatient believers, little things set us off. Can't just go ahead and learn to be patient through the trial. Can't just learn to rest in our Savior. If we're going to always have that impatient, grumbling, complaining spirit, we will never be godly. We'll never be godlike on this side of eternity. This is a big deal tonight. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has everything to do with your effectiveness here on earth. Patience allows you to reflect the glory of God, and then patience allows God to go ahead and move you to godliness. Wow. That's big. Do you know tonight... That thought just answered some of your questions tonight why you just aren't growing like you should be because you refuse to exercise patience and get this thing nailed down in the midst of trials. And your spiritual growth has come to a screeching halt and you can't figure out why because the Lord's saying you need to get this attitude right before you'll ever go further with me. Patience allows us to reflect the glory of God. Patience allows God to build our faith and character. And look at what it does. Go back to our text as we close. Not a long message tonight. Plenty to chew on tonight. But notice what's said in James. Pick it back up in verse 2, and we'll just daisy-chain these three verses together. He says, My brethren, James chapter 1 and verse 2, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, <laughs> knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect 
and entire, look at how he says this now, wanting nothing. He has this whole thought of just totally resting and contented in the midst of all that's going on. Notice what he says in verse 4. He begins by saying this, let. What does that word let mean? I wrote it down. Allow, yield. Drop your pride, drop your resistance, drop your reactionary spirit and attitude when things come in your life that you don't like and that you didn't order up. Just allow this to take place. Allow what? To allow patience to have her perfect work. What is the perfect work that patience produces? Well, verse 4 tells us. First of all, it makes you entire, perfect and entire, which has the idea of being mature, and complete. And then it adds this, wanting nothing. The spirit of peace and contentment. Note in your notes, and this is a big deal, the trial does not perfect you. Your response to it does. It's patience that produces the perfect work. I'm going to say that again. The trial doesn't perfect you. That's just the proving ground moment that God sent to give you the opportunity to either react or respond. Let me say this. Reaction is negative. Response is positive. You ever go to a doctor and uh, he goes ahead and gives you a shot and then all of a sudden you break out into stuff? What does he say? Oh, you're reacting to the treatment. It's negative. Then you come back and he gives you another shot and wow, it all disappears and you're feeling better. You're responding well, he says. Reaction is negative, response is positive. God does not want you to react to trials. He wants you to respond to the trial and respond with patience. It's not the trial that perfects you, it's your response to it that perfects you. Patience is what perfects you, amen? Look at what the psalmist said. Look at Psalm 40. I'm about done. Look at how he says this. Go to Psalm 40. The psalmist said it, and he just captures it so well. We see his focus here so well. But notice here in, in Psalm 40, the 40th Psalm, his, what his focus is. Patience is the response of the heart that is focused on God. Look at what's said in Psalm 40 and verse number 1. The psalmist says, I waited patiently for who? For the Lord. Well, where was he? he? Was he in his morning break and he had a cup of coffee and just everything was tickety-boo? No. He said, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry and he brought me up out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock and established my goings and put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto my God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Here he is in the midst of the mire, probably a dungeon, probably the septic tank of the dungeon. He's up to his armpits and all that. And where's he looking? He's waiting patiently for the Lord. His focus wasn't the circumstances. His focus was the Lord. Amen? That, that was what he was, that's who he was staring at in the midst of the trial his patience, he waited patiently for what? The Lord. 
All too often we complain about what we're in instead of looking to the one who's above all of it. The psalmist, his focus wasn't what he was in, it was on the Lord. And I, I brought this, when you learn to wait on him, you learn to rest in him. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. Christ is all you need. He's the constant. He's not the variable. Life is the variable. Our Savior is our constant. He changes not, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Why put your focus on the variable? And life is full of them, isn't it? You ever notice since you got married, there's variables? Amen? You ever notice after you got saved, join a church, there's variables? Right? There's just, that's life. Why focus on that? Why make that your obsessive thing you stare at? Why not focus on the one who changes not, who's the friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's the constant. When we learn to wait on him, we learn to rest in him. I've got a friend, a friend that I met years ago. His name was Ron Henderson, Major General Ron Henderson. Anybody know who Ron Henderson was? Major General, Fairfax, Virginia. Does that look familiar? I met Ron for the first time in the year, probably was about 2003, 2004. We are at Fairfax Baptist Temple. The kids came through to sing, and I was scheduled to preach a Wednesday night service. I'd met leadership a, a year earlier. I, I met him with, at Brother Getty's work and Bud Calvert. And so I thought, well, he invited us to come through, so I came through. And uh, Sunday night after the service was over, I'm scheduled to preach. It was announced I was going to preach Wednesday. And <clears throat> a fellow came up to me, and he said, Now, Brother Summerdorf, my name's Ron Henderson, and and I just want you to know I won't be here Wednesday to hear you preach. The Air Force has me in South Dakota. I'm inspecting some missile silos, but I just want you to know I'd love to be here. I can't. I apologize for it, but I want you to know I'll be praying for you. He walked away, and I remember turning to Brother Calvert. I said, who was that? Never met him before. Oh, he said, craziest thing. He's my two-star general. He does that to me every time he's out of town. He checks in to let me know where he's going to be, apologizes for being gone, lets me know he'll be praying for me. He's one of my ushers. Nobody knows who he is. He just got a servant's heart. Well, over the years, as we would come through, our daughter Kimberly went on staff there, and so Ron and I became close friends. We came to find out he was the real deal. Ron, if you'll ever hear his testimony, it's on my DVD that I give out. Ron was a young lieutenant in the, in the Air Force. He's a B-52 driver. He's a B-52 pilot. And uh, he said one day, a young lieutenant buddy came to him and said, Ron, are you a Christian? You a believer? He said, well, as a matter of fact, I am. And he said, that young lieutenant said to me, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Ron said, why is that? Because there's nothing about your life that says you belong to Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Ron said, Brother Dave, it stood me up. He said, I, I knew I'd gotten saved, but I wasn't living for him. And he said, I went home to my house that night. I got down beside my bed, and I got on my knees and I said, Lord, as long as I live, I don't ever want to hear that statement said about me again. God, please make me who you want me to be. He said, I dropped the reins and let God have his way in my life. And Ron became an amazing guy. Dear friend, 
wonderful Daniel in King's courts. He knew the Secretary of the Air Force personally, wonderful influence, and loved the Lord with all his heart. But one day we got the tragic news. Ron got lung cancer. Never had smoked a day of his life, but he had lung cancer. And he began to battle that, different treatments and so forth. But we watched as we would come through every few months, every year or so, Ron just began to crumble in front of our eyes. He had to wear a body cast. He was still working 60 hours a week. He'd go into the Pentagon and work, and his wife would drop him off, and, and then she'd pick him up after work, and he'd just collapse in the vehicle, and she'd take him home and just tuck him in bed, and he'd rehab for the next day. I remember calling our daughter Kimberly one day, and I said, how's Ron doing? She said, Dad, he's... He's the most amazing guy. I said, how's that? Well, we singles, we went over to Sister Henderson, Linda, and Ron's place, and we caroled for him for Christmas. We went over caroling. We wanted to encourage him. We knew all the struggles he was going through. And, Dad, we weren't there five minutes, and it was nothing about him. It was all about us. How are you doing, Kimberly? Here's some, here's some cookies. You want some punch? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Dad, it was all about us. You would have never known he was the dying man. One of the greatest honors Ron ever paid my family was two and a half weeks before he died. He came to our daughter's wedding in Fairfax. He honored us by responding to the invitation. He came in, just a shell of a man, sat down. My dad was in. Dad and mom came for the wedding, of course, and I took dad over. Dad was a Navy veteran and was a seaplane man, and I always like introducing him to the old warriors and I took him over to Ron and I said dad I just want you to meet a, a good friend of mine it's Major General Ron Henderson it just uh, they shook hands and I just stepped back and let the old old guard talk I always enjoy watching that two and a half weeks later Ron died I remember calling dad and said hey dad I uh, want to let you know Ron passed away Ron Henderson my dad was always short he didn't say a lot of words he would speak not a lot of words very unlike me dad was much less of a speaker but he, he he would always hit it he nailed it and he nailed it at that moment he said well the old general's home that's all he said remember a year before ron died i asked him ron brother ron how's it going i'll never forget his answer I want to close with this. He just straightened up with a smile. He said, Brother Dave, cancer is my calling. I said, what do you mean, Brother Ron? He said, cancer, unless God intervenes, is my final call. He said, it allows me to do something that most people never get the opportunity to do. He said, you see, Brother Dave, I work with some high-ranking individuals. They would normally never give me the time of day to tell them how to be saved. But because they know I'm a dying man, they give me honor and let me speak. And he said, this is my final call. God has called me to finish this way. Pilot terms, we call that flying head thing the splashdown. You don't punch out. You don't go ahead and jettison. You take it all the way in. And Ron did that. He wasn't freaking. He wasn't kicking the walls, drop-kicking the cat, getting mad at God, angry that God allowed cancer. No, he saw it as a final opportunity to bring glory to his God. 
And he said, you can use my story. Ron's the front man for every Air Force pack that goes out in the world. He addresses those airmen and tells them how to be saved. Let patience have her perfect work. Amen? Grow up in our attitude toward trials and tribulations. Go back to James 1. We'll just read the verses and pray. The Lord says this. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Brothers and sisters, this is an area God wants us to grow up in. He wants us to grow up in our attitude toward trials and tribulations. Allow patience to have her perfect work. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and commit these thoughts. Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to hear your word and allow it to touch our hearts. And I pray for the one. Father, they need to be saved. I pray their faith has found a resting place in Christ. And even in this time that we focus so much on your cry and your heart for your people, Lord, I pray they would see there's something in us different than them, and they need that Savior as well. Open their eyes, I pray. And then, Father, for your people, for each of us as your children tonight, Help us to grow up in our attitude toward trials and tribulation. Help us to recognize, Lord, that you are sovereign and everything you allow in our life, Father, has a purpose. It's not meant to break us. It's meant to build us. Father, it's not meant to ruin us. It's meant to reveal us and show the purity of our faith. And, Lord, I pray tonight that we would count it all joy when we fall to divers' temptations. Father, that we would recognize that Patience does have a perfect work if we yield and respond with patience in the midst of the trial. This world in which we live, help us to bring glory to your name because of a patient response to trials. And Father, we ask that you would move us toward godliness because of a patient response in the midst of trials. Help us to be what you want us to be. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Listen, if you want to slip out and come, Christian, as a minimum, we ought to be praying for patience tonight. Just slip out and come. Here's this prayer.